The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we choose three pieces from the magazine and ask their writers to read them aloud. I'm Oscar Edmondson and on the podcast this week, Jenny McCartney says don't expect a united island anytime soon. Chloe Ashby reads her review of Con slash Artist, the memoir of notorious art forger Tony Tetro. And Ascender Maxstone Graham reads her notes on canapes. Up first, Jenny McCartney. A hundred years since the founding of the Irish state on 6th December 1922, how likely or desirable is the prospect of Irish unity? The recent electoral success of Sinn Féin suggested to many, particularly in the US, that the idea's momentum is now unstoppable. Of course, it's being egged on by Sinn Féin itself, whose New York Times advertisements in March proclaimed that Irish unity would be in the best interests of citizens abroad and the wider diaspora. Extensive polling for the Irish Times this week, however, paints a much more complex, contradictory picture of opinion at home. Before stocking up on celebratory green beer, the Irish-American diaspora might well be advised to read it. Among those polled in the Republic of Ireland, two-thirds said they would vote for a united Ireland in a border referendum. Yet this number declined when respondents were asked to consider a new Irish flag or national anthem to accommodate Unionist citizens. Almost half declared themselves less likely to vote for a united Ireland in the first place. The idea that Unionists could veto a new law if they thought it violated their vital interests triggered the same effect. The Irish Times characterised the South's desire for unity as wide but not deep. Sinn Féin's current status as Ireland's most popular party may owe more to its stance on housing and health care than the border. In Northern Ireland, half of all respondents said they would vote against a united Ireland, with only 27% in favour. The majority opposed were Protestant at 79%, but a surprisingly large minority of Catholics also refused to back unity with 21% against and 21% undecided. One reason is the NHS. Across a sectarian divide, people fret about losing access to free universal health care, even though Northern Ireland's hospitals are currently in crisis. Charges for health care in the Republic, where a visit to the GP can cost €60, send shudders down Northern spines. Ireland's argument that many patients are exempt from fees and have better health outcomes overall does little to reassure them. Beneath the wrangling on policies, however, sits a more serious concern, that the pursuit of Irish unity against the wishes of a significant Protestant minority could trigger violence. While 73% of Northern Ireland voters would accept a vote in favour of unity, happily or unhappily, 18% said they would find it almost impossible to accept. Among Protestants, such resistant respondents constituted 32%. Some of those would no doubt leave Northern Ireland altogether. Others would stay while adapting with discomfort to the new state, 
and a third group, such as still active loyalist paramilitaries in the Ulster Volunteer Force and Ulster Defence Association, might well be willing to reignite violence in opposition to unity. The grimmest prospect, clearly an anxiety for Southern Pole respondents, would be a slim referendum victory for Irish unity followed by a loyalist paramilitary campaign in Ireland. In this scenario, a nightmarish mirror image of the IRA's campaign in Britain, Irish and not British troops would be required to act as northern peacekeepers. In an Irish Times box pop from a Roscommon pub, one regular asked of the North, when they throw the rattle out of the pram, would we have to send troops up there to keep them quiet? A southern participant in a focus group was cited saying of loyalism, they still have paramilitary capabilities and then we would have to deal with that, in the same way as they did for over 30 years from London. They would be regarding themselves as second-class citizens. It's an appalling scenario, but one which must nonetheless be weighed. The moral argument against any such loyalist violence would be rightly that a small number of paramilitaries should never be able to override the wishes of a democratic majority. But this vital principle has been steadily undermined in recent years by the electoral assent of Sinn Féin. The current Northern Ireland First Minister, Michelle O'Neill, argued in August that at the time there was no alternative to the provisional IRA's squalid 30-year campaign, despite the fact that John Hume's moderate SDLP offered a very clear nationalist alternative and the vast majority of Irish people then publicly opposed IRA violence. Yet when polled recently, nearly 7 out of 10 Northern Nationalists agreed with O'Neill's analysis, and as it's the official Sinn Féin position, presumably many Southern Sinn Féin voters do too. As a template, it's a dangerous one, raising the question, if a minority of loyalists felt sufficiently aggrieved and marginalised inside a united Ireland, or en route to one, might loyalist paramilitaries claim similar justification for a renewed armed campaign? The late comedian Dave Allen used to tell a joke about how when Irish people were asked for directions, they'd answer, I wouldn't start from here. It's a gag about illogic, but the answer makes sense to me. It means that from this particular point, working out the journey is especially difficult. Nationalism and unionism should have been sitting easier together more than 20 years since the ceasefires and the Belfast Agreement, breaking down sectarian stereotypes and uniting against the common scourge of paramilitarism. Instead, the self-romanticising of murderous sectarian factions has been indulged, and their murky operations tolerated with a light official touch. Now we have an isolated unionism rendered insecure by the post-Brexit protocol and its sea border, a buoyant Sinn Féin defending past IRA violence, and an Irish electorate which seemingly enjoys the idea of Irish unity, but not that of rendering the state more palatable to unionists. Oh, and also armed, twitchy loyalist paramilitaries flush with drugs money. The degree of ambivalence and fluidity in the polls on unity suggests that quite a lot of people in Ireland, including many nationalists, may think as I do. When it comes to fast-tracking the reality of a united Ireland, I wouldn't start from here. That was Jenny McCartney. Next, Chloe Ashby. 
Tony Tetro's memoir starts with a bang, or rather a bust. On 18th April 1989, 25 policemen spilled into his condo in Claremont, California, confiscated the $8,000 he was just paid in cash and proceeded to search the place, slicing through wallpaper, pulling up carpets, emptying drawers. The scene is pacey, thrilling, a bit silly. It reads like a Hollywood film script, which, if I'm being cynical, is probably the point. The pièce de résistance... If you pressed hashtag star on the cordless phone, a full-length mirror would pop open and reveal my secret stash of special papers, pigments, collector stamps, light tables, vintage typewriters, certificates of authenticity, notebooks with signatures, everything a professional art forger might need. You needn't have heard of Tetro to enjoy this book, nor is any prior knowledge of the art world required with all the cocaine and the fast cars, con stroke artist has more than a whiff of bad boy memoir about it. And the chapter titles, The Last Laugh, The Wild West, Things Go Bad, read like the names of pop songs. But beneath the grit and the glamour is a fascinating tale of a diligent, self-taught artist with a good work ethic and a great natural talent. Co-authored with Jean-Pierre Ambrosi, the investigative journalist involved in uncovering Tetro's connection to the Prince Charles art forgery scandal in 2019, this is the story of his life and art. He was born Anthony Jean Tetro in 1950 in Fulton, New York, an all-American town not far from Lake Ontario, to Italian immigrant parents getting on with getting ahead. Spending his time building and decorating sandcastles at Fairhaven Beach, and copying photos from books and magazines, he showed an interest in art from a young age. In high school, a favourite teacher introduced him to the old masters, whose painted scenes he pored over in the library. He remembers reading that when Michelangelo heard others say that the Pietà had been made by one of his rivals, he snuck into the Vatican, outraged, and carved his name on it. I don't blame him, writes Tetro. It's ironic considering what I do, but years later, when I forged a piece that somebody else claimed, I think I understood what Michelangelo must have felt. After his girlfriend got pregnant, Tetro and his young family moved to California. He sold furniture six days a week and, for fun, stayed up at night painting meticulous copies of Rembrandt, Picasso, Renoir, letting my mind run with the flowing colours and brushstrokes. The relationship didn't last, but Tetro's love of art did. It's evident in the description of his first trip to a museum, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, to see a Rembrandt. I remember an oval portrait of a man, and what struck me was that you could see he had a twinkle in his eye that looked so real and alive that he seemed to have a soul. After trying and failing to sell his work, Tetro stumbled on a copy of Clifford Irving's Fake at the supermarket and was inspired by the story of the Hungarian art forger Elmir Dehori. As I read, one idea became clearer and clearer. The only thing I could think was, I could do this. He took it slow, knowing that an oil painting by a big-name artist would draw attention and that provenance could pose a problem. So the first piece of art that Tony Tetro forged was itself intended to be a fake, a small self-portrait of Chagall signed by Dehori. 
A magician never reveals his secrets, but Tetro is no magician. Readers hankering for the nitty-gritty of how he made his fakes won't be disappointed. He recalls taking trips to Paris and Rome to pick up supplies. Oils for Dali, Chagall and Picasso, iron gall ink, a natural black that couldn't be dated, antique books with empty pages that could be used for drawings. In order to give just the lightest pattern of age to a Miro oil painting, he squashed the butts of Lucky Strike unfiltered cigarettes in a small glass of cold coffee, put the mixture through a strainer, then gently misted it onto the stretcher bars and back of the canvas. I knew a guy who had a restaurant, begins my favourite anecdote. At night, when the restaurant was closed and everybody had gone home, he let me in and I stuck my painting, stretcher bars and all, into the wide-mouthed pizza oven, setting it at the lowest temperature, 140 degrees. For a week, Tetro baked this painting, his version of a Caravaggio, Then he rolled it up and was pleased to see a spidery network of tiny white lines form across the surface. Now, with the paint cracked, I set about to create a past life for the Bacchus, using layers of grime, soot and varnish to suggest a history of age and neglect. Because that's the thing, writes Tetro. Ask a hundred people what they think an art forger does and 99 will tell you they copy paintings. In reality, nothing could be further from the truth. To really make a forgery, you have to make something new that never existed and give it a reason for being born. Back in the 80s, art historians still had a lot to learn about the high priest of the Italian Baroque. In Tetro's words, old books on Caravaggio were rare and facts easily fudged. There was a chaotic period in Malta and talk of paintings being lost, looted and destroyed. In my mind, it all started to come together. I could have done without the passages on Tetro's love interests and the lacklustre later chapters of Con Stroke Artist when life didn't seem fun and vibrant anymore. But from start to finish, his passion for art and knack for drama carry the reader through. As for what's real and what's fake, who knows? If you think about it, the key to being a great forger is not being a great painter, but rather a convincing storyteller, writes Tetro. Like the best con artists, you must create a context and a backstory that justify an otherwise unbelievable circumstance. That was Chloe Ashby. Finally, Ascender Max Tone Graham. Canapes are one of life's delights and surprises. Surprises because drinks party invitations usually give nothing away. Perhaps because nibbles is such a hideous word, or perhaps just because of invitation convention, hosts tend simply to put drinks 6.30 to 8.30 on the paperless post card. So you arrive with no idea whether you're in for two hours of fizz on an empty stomach or for a culinary treat in a succession of miniatures. Always braced for the worst-case scenario, starvation in high heels, I'm overjoyed to spot a tray of canapes coming towards me through the throng, and am pathetically grateful to the host for this beneficence. For women especially, eternally trying not to eat too much, canapes enable the perfect combination of two hours of active greed, while still not having as much to eat as you normally would for supper. Little bites of heaven is how caterers portray canapes in their publicity material, and they're right. 
written descriptions of the items, such as Emily Priest's sublime miniature pork and andouja sausage rolls with Bloody Mary ketchup, don't do justice to their mood-enhancing delectableness. I have trained myself to hold back from grabbing a canapé too desperately when the tray comes round. I notice that the tactic of the unashamed is to be the first in the group of chatters to grab and gobble one up, so that by the time the last person has had one, especially if they come with a dip so it all takes longer, the first one has finished his, it is usually a he, and says, ooh, may I have a second one? I worry about this double gobbling because the conventional allocation is 12 canapés per person at about £2.75 per canapé. So that person who has just stuffed £5 into his mouth in those 15 seconds has already had a sixth of his evening's allocation. For the whole thing to balance out, you need to count on a few thin women resolutely saying no thank you for the entire evening. What happens when the tray does arrive, but there's only one canapé left on it? Who takes it? One thing is certain, everyone wants it. But there's usually a brief time of hesitation, during which a sort of dance takes place, the men politely saying, you first, to the women, and the women knowing that they couldn't live with themselves if they succumbed to such a public act of greed. Usually in the end, it's the fattest of the men who pops it into his mouth with a gracious shrug. The only thing that mars the canapés experience for me is the arrival of the sweet canapés, which have become fashionable. They're the equivalent of the neon lights being switched on towards the end of a teenage disco. Not much longer, folks. The imminent end of the party is signalled. There's a strange hybrid time when the last of the savoury ones are still going round and the first of the sweet ones have arrived and you know that as soon as you've had your first sweet one, you can never, ever go back. To eat a miniature brownie at 8.15pm is not only goodbye to the party, but also death to the evening ahead. And that's everything for this week. If you enjoy those articles, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine? I'm Oscar Edmondson, and I hope you join us again next week.